Hello and welcome to another episode of National Reviews Capital Record. I am your host, David Bonson. I'm really excited as we continue through 2023 and all the great questions in economic thought and, and capital markets to have a first-rate uh, economist joining us today, Dr. Vanskin, formerly in the Office of Management and Budget in the Trump administration, has served as a senior economist at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, um, and is just someone I've gotten to know over the years and believe that we'll have a fruitful discussion today covering a lot of different topics. Uh, I want to bring Vance on and let us just sort of riff about where we are in the economy um, and, and what ought to be done about some of the crucial economic questions we face. With that said, let me bring on Dr. Vance Ginn. So with that said, allow me to introduce to the Capitol Record for the very first time, very special guest, Dr. Vance Ginn. Vance, welcome to the Capitol Record. David, it's a pleasure to be with you. I've, I've listened to your show for a long time, so it's really a pleasure to be on today. Well, and it's kind of fun, too, because I think this may have happened once or maybe twice with some other guests where um, we've done sort of a reciprocal thing because I was on their podcast and then I've had now had them on, on mine. And, and I uh, about a month and a half ago, I had the uh, fortune of being on your podcast. So why don't you uh, announce that to li listeners so they get familiar with some of your other work? Yeah, I appreciate that. And um, it's the Let People Prosper show. Uh, you can find it, the link and others at vancegin.com. Uh, it was a really good pleasure to have you on the show. We talked about inflation and the economy and the financial markets. And it was really a great discussion. Got a lot of good feedback. So hopefully others will go and check that out. And so I um, see from, you know, your kind of background, and we've, we've talked about some of this before, you, you've been involved both on the policy side, uh, most recently serving in the Trump administration in uh, the Department of OMB, Office of Management and Budget, um, and of course have been involved with some think tanks, chief economist at uh, Texas Public Policy, uh, currently at the Pelican Institute for Public Policy in Louisiana, um, but obviously has done you've done a lot of research at other different groups, think tanks. What what got you into economics originally as as a student and and choosing this path for your career? What was sort of the impetus to to going down an economic uh, way of life? Yeah, David, it, it's kind of interesting. You know, I started off as a rock drummer. <laughs> I wanted to be a drummer for a rock band, and I was for a while in Houston. Um, played some hard rock types of music, and um, we did that for a while. I was living the rock star life, you could put it that way. And um, I started. I took an economics course um, at Texas Tech University as an intermediate macro. Um, Dr. Ronald Gilbert was my mentor at the time, and he was teaching about you know economics and how things work together. And it really kind of set me to the stage of saying, you know what, I really like the the way the economics explains things. It, it seems to explain things well of how people behave and how the economy works together as we're just people interacting and exchanging these things. And it really set me on that path. And, you know, I remember, David, well, after one of the classes, because uh, I would go and talk to Dr. Gilbert every day and uh, after the class, and um, he said, hey, you should read this book. And it was Milton Friedman's Capitalism and Freedom. And it really changed the course of my, you know, my direction of thinking from a classical liberal thought, uh, free market economics. And it really got me on this stage 
privilege of wanting to get a PhD in economics as a first-generation college student coming someone from someone from South Houston, Texas, very you know, low or uh, minimal income growing up from a single mom household, and, and having that opportunity to kind of change the direction of my life, my family's life, and others. And, and ultimately, that's what got me into this calling of let people prosper, um, where I've really just been driving home the sound economic way of thinking and trying to learn as much as I can from a Austrian, Chicago, classical, just trying to piece all these things together. What I really call, and others have, Peter Betke, I don't know if you know Peter Betke, but he's called mainline economics, where all these things come together. And, and that's really got me on this, on this, this stage now of moving from you know, a drummer, David, into an, an economist to public policy, working in the White House of all places. It's really been extraordinary. Well, I love it. And so you, uh, just to, again, give people that background, you majored in economics at Texas Tech as a mm -hmm. bachelor's, but then ended up getting your doctorate from Texas Tech as well, and, and definitely solidified the career choice of being an economist. So you mentioned, so Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman is a pretty great place to start, juxtaposing that idea of how liberty ought to be applied to um, the economic dimension. And you mentioned the Austrian school and the Chicago school. Uh, who were some of the influences as you advanced in your studies of economics? Was Peter Betke one who was influential in you? Um, how did you end up sort of uh, crystallizing around this both Austrian and Chicago influence? Yeah, David. I mean, so I got that PhD in economics where uh, this was before the Free Market Institute was at Texas Tech, which is a great program now that Ben Powell has at Texas Tech. Uh, I was in the economics department and it was more Keynesian, like most uh, PhD programs. So it's a lot of math, um, a lot of higher level math, um, and then applying some of the economic basics to that math. And, and so it was really on a Keynesian sort of perspective. And so from that, I went to a couple of um, Institute for Humane Studies, their fine um, liberty in a free society, scholarship in a free society programs that they would have. And some of those speakers that they would that were there were folks like Peter Bedke, Steve Horwitz, Mark Pennington, um, a lot of the folks in the Austrian tradition, you know, and have built on that over time. And um, another big book that really got me headed into the free market space was um, Frederick Hayek's Road to Serfdom, The Fatal Conceit, which is probably my favorite book by, by Frederick Hayek, um, The Knowledge Problem and Spontaneous Order and all of those things, uh, and then kind of piecing that together with some of the math. I mean, I think we get too far along in the math and economics. With PhD in economics is mostly all about math nowadays, but there are some good things to testing your hypotheses given that math that's that's available. And that's what the Chicago School, I think, brought in pretty well with rational thinking and rational decision making and things of that nature. Um, and kind of piecing those together gives more of this mainline school of economics from Adam Smith. You know, you got to start with Adam. Smith, uh, moving on David Ricardo, comparative advantage, and kind of moving along that path over time. But Peter Betke has definitely been one of the key um, highlights or, or, or people that have influenced me today. John Taylor is another one over at the Hoover Institute. Um, Art Laffer, uh, you know, those are the kinds of folks that I'm really reading and thinking about and talking to um, nowadays to get economic insight along the way. And I should, and we can talk about this later, but when I was in the White House, it was a time whenever COVID hit. 
And I found myself in the situation room and other things, you know, thinking about how this was going to influence the economy. And the people that I turned to the most at that time were folks like um, Laffer, Steve Moore, um, uh, uh, Peter Betke, and John Taylor. Those were the folks I was talking to, thinking through these situations. And so um, that's kind of where my thinking has been over the years. You know what's interesting, and I want to make a point for listeners in, in hearing you, we have we have similar process in our own respective journeys in studying economic thought, that it doesn't sound like you were limiting yourself to trying to stay in one lane of only deep Austrian thinkers at the expense of everyone else, or only real specific supply side thinkers at the expense of Austrian or, or other schools of thought, that there's a general freedom movement behind the classical thinkers and in the 20th century, Austrian and, and Chicago schools, and even in a more kind of neo-Austrian sense with Horwitz and Betke and some of these. And then you look at the monetary side when you mentioned John Taylor, uh, obviously Laffer is sort of the, the godfather of supply side. My view was always that there was just something profoundly significant to learn from all of these people and that there was areas of disagreement, some of them would have with one another, some areas of agreement, but that I benefited as a student of economics by learning what I could from all of them, all the different camps and people and characters in, in history. You know, it, it, it doesn't take long for a serious student to realize where even Smith and Ricardo would have disagreed with each other on certain things. But more than disagreement, an evolution of thought, a sort of development and application. And yet I think that there is a significant amount of people in the freedom movement that have turned themselves off from certain great influences of economic thought because they were unwilling to take a sort of big tent approach to economics. Was this a conscious thing on your part or, or was it just intuitive to kind of absorb the greatness of all these different masters? Yeah, David, uh, that's a great question. I think that um, it, it's part of the scientific method for me, you know, test your hypotheses, find out more information. I think you're right, though. Too many people get stuck in one area and only focus in that area and then basically cast out everyone else. And that's not the way that I work. That's not the way my brain works um, to where I wanted to study more of the like, for example, let me start here is going back to my time at Texas Tech and learning at the Keynesian view of economics <laughs> and DSGE models and things of that nature, um, maximizing utility function, linear programming. Those are things that I have questions about nowadays, but at the time it was really good to understand what that line of thinking was about and what they were trying to do. So Keynes, I think, actually helped us learn a lot about economics, even though I question his measures of GDP, his, his Keynesian view of, of deficit spending when we're in recessions and things of that nature. Oh, by the way, we often forget that he also said run surpluses when you're in expansions to where you're not going to have increases in the national debt over time. The Keynesian, the modern monetarist, they forget that part now. Um, and so I think it really is important to understand what Friedman was thinking. Hayek, beloved von Mises, I forgot to throw him in there. Love von Mises, of course, you know. Um, and, and these, and Douglas North, institutional types of economics, those sort of things really um, bring together this view of the economy, which to me is just people. We talk about economics as this thing that nobody knows what, what that really means, but really it's just people, just like free markets are just free people. Um, and so when we think about it in those terms, 
having these different thought leaders and what they were explaining at the time is really important to give you a broad view of what's going on in the economy. So I think whenever we have a recession, when we have a pandemic, it really gives you an idea of how we should be thinking about um, what's going on within people's exchanges and entrepreneurship and things of that nature. And so I, I agree with you, David. I think it is really important to have a broad perspective from a number of different thought leaders. And so as that process unfolded and, and you kind of, you know, learned some of the differences and yet some of the areas of, of common ground, um, how do you reconcile that issue today about the Chicago-Austrian divide? Um, I've brought this up with a number of people on the podcast before. I had Mark Skousen on some time ago who wrote a really tremendous book about Vienna and Chicago. I love that and book. And he, yeah. he kind of surprised me because – he had stated that in the end, he sort of adopted um, the the application of of much of Austrian monetary policy, but the methodology more from Chicago. In other words, one that put uh, practice above theory, so to speak, where he thought Austrian was more committed to theory than practice, and. I um, went a sort of different direction. I, I have uh, much more sympathies for Chicago's monetarism uh, than I do a real hard Rothbardian gold standard, let's say, on the Austrian side of monetary policy. And yet I find myself really quite married to Austrian praxeology, as, uh, the, the von Miesian concepts in, in a priori, um, well, really just deductive uh, thinking about economics. And so that blend of what the Chicago and Austrian schools have to offer, it can be different for a really renowned scholar like Skousen, the way that I've sort of applied it. But I'm comfortable juxtaposing Austrian and Chicago um, uh, influences. Tell me how you've kind of netted out on some of those interesting areas of economic debate. Yeah, I think I, I follow along with, with both of you, actually. And I think the way that I see it from a, a high-level perspective is that the Austrian school, to me, tells the best story about the market process of price theory and how all these things come together. I just think that the process there of the orders of production and how the interest rates and the Federal Reserve influencing the economy and manipulating uh, markets... Um, you can see that in reality. You can see that stuff play out. Um, the 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 part that I kind of grapple is tough to grapple with sometimes with the Austrian school is the reality sometimes of let's just get rid of the Federal Reserve, which I am one of those who wants to end the Fed. <laughs> but the reality is is that we do have the Fed, and so when we want to talk a little bit more about what the reality is compared to the true market process, I tend to move more towards the Chicago school, where Milton Friedman, you know, I think he would also have liked to end the Fed, but would also say, look, we've got the Fed in place today, so why don't we have a K percent money growth rule? Um, have rules in place that, that align with what the economy is doing as a whole to, instead of manipulating the economy. Um, I also think that there's importance about rational decision-making. Um, at the same time, in the Austrian perspective, is that 
their subjective values. <laughs> All these are subjective values that are in play. And so you have the market that's moving um, along the way and, and, and people are making these decisions based on satisfying their own desires to, you know, to prosper, let people prosper, right? Within this free market. And, and so I think the way that I bring those two together is, look, I think the basics of economics are told very well by the Austrian school um, with some reality to what's going on with interest rates, what's going on with the Federal Reserve, the um, government spending, and trying to piece those two together, I think, has given me a good appreciation for the Austrian school and the Chicago school over time. Um, you, you know, I, I, the first person that always comes to mind, like I said earlier, was Milton Friedman, but I've, I've learned a lot from Hayek. I just recently reread Fatal Conceit just because it is my, one of my favorite books um, that really talks about the knowledge problem and getting yeah. into people's head of, of why folks like at the Federal Reserve have such a problem because there's so many markets that are mo- people that are moving throughout the marketplace. It's difficult to have all that available knowledge or Congress trying to come up with spending to direct resources throughout the economy. And, and I think when you put these two together with Chicago School and Austrian School, you get a better idea of, okay, this is really what works to let people prosper, to have flourishing societies that the least among us can be brought off better, um, to be to be brought up better over time through free market capitalism. And yeah. I, uh, some of the other schools of thought kind of get trapped in trying to manipulate the economy. That the economy is just a, ma- a machine that you can turn the wheels and get it to where you want it to be. And I, that's just not the way that I see um, the economy at all. Yeah, I'm I'm slowly developing a belief. I haven't fully flushed it out yet, but prima facie. I'm I'm tempted to this notion that when a lot of different groups want to claim a certain person as their own, even though those groups are in conflict with one another, the person they're trying to claim may be on to something. Hmm. And I recently had Glory Lou on who wrote a fantastic book about um, Adam Smith and some of the different interpretations of Adam Smith that we've seen over the last 250 years. And, and as I read through the history that she was documenting in the book, it was just surreal to me to see the ways in which over history, different schools of thought have wanted to claim Adam Smith as their own. But Hayek is probably my favorite 20th century influence. And I say it as someone who just grew up adoring Milton Friedman. And I do believe Milton was, as, um, like Bill Buckley, just an incredibly gifted communicator both as a speaker and a writer. And I I don't want to underestimate the importance of that. But Friedrich Hayek is fascinating because you'll get kind of Looney Tune Austrians that want to claim him as their own. You'll get the more conventional and respectable and and academically impressive um, Austrians who will claim them as their own, the Peter Beckys and whatnot. And then a lot of the Chicago side. You know, I think Milton Friedman was an heir of, of... um, Hayek in, in so many ways. The supply siders all adore Hayek, you know. Um, and, and I think there's something to be said about Hayek and, and Adam Smith that their, their influence is so um, widespread and, and there's such an intellectual foundation to what a lot of their work was. I think knowledge problem in 20th century became a real uh, base for um, arguing uh, ideologically against statism. And I think Smith with self-interest with um, Ricardo sort of developed more comparative advantage, but I think he did so out of a real uh, elementary understanding of, of Smith's work about free exchange and mutual cooperation. 
And so I, I think that it's helpful to find some of those influences. And then it sounds like guys like you and me have found some of that, even with some of the supply siders, that there's people who could disagree with them on certain aspects of trade policy, of monetary policy, of fiscal policy, but the fundamental notion of restoring incentives and the supply side of the economy, productivity as a centerpiece of economic growth, that the Laffers and Cudlows and Mundells and Kemp's and that these guys belong uh, in a really important place in our current economic conversation. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I've learned a lot from them as well. Um, and one of the other folks that doesn't really get a lot of notoriety out there is, is, is Douglas North uh, with his institutional economics, new institutional yeah. economics, where he really broke it down into economic, political, and social institutions and how there are formal norms that we have out there that are the rules of the game that we play by, like private property rights, but there are also informal rules. Um, your mores, your, your just the norms that we live with each and every day where those informal norms are as important, if not more important, than the formal rules of the game that are out there. And I, I think that we are losing a lot of those within society today as we're maybe falling off from, you know, I don't know if it's religion or if it's if it's coming together as a community, but we're too often looking to government for the, the solution and the answer. And all the folks that you just mentioned earlier, whether it be supply siders, Austrian school, or, or Chicago, are like, you know, hold up. <laughs> there are some cautions we need to put in place by relying too much on one person or, or just government, it's really about civil society. How do we get civil society to come together to where the private sector is where the most productivity is going to happen? Uh, jobs are going to be created. Uh, it is not taking from some to give to another that you really allow for people to flourish. And that's where those incentives come in to where, you know, supply side said, look, if you, if you lower taxes, people are going to want to work more and people are going to want to create more businesses because incentives really do matter, which I think goes back to basic econ 101 of opportunity costs, incentives, um, it just price theory in, in general. And, and it really brings to light the the impetus, the the impact that all these things are having together. And we've seen this throughout history now of how tax rates matter, how interest rates matter. And, and now let's make sure that we can learn from those things and not keep repeating these, these mistakes that we've made in the past. Would, um, would some of that work that Douglas North did in distinguishing between that formal and informal and the role of norms and, and as you call it, mores in society, would some of that of build upon Friedrich's idea, Friedrich Hayek's idea of spontaneous order that a lot of these norms were to be respected because they spontaneously came about out of a sort of ordered society? Or was he kind of going a was he was he making a different point than that? No, I think that's a big part of it was there was about that spontaneous order that was coming within society of how people, um, there is order without there being a top-down order, right? <laughs> that, that, that's one thing that's beautiful about the market process is that we don't need, kind of going back to the invisible hand by Adam Smith, we don't need someone to direct the resources within an economy. It, it happens through spontaneous order by people wanting to satisfy their desires 
and having those exchanges take place within trade um, and then you know, doing what's in our best interest and that we're doing most efficiently compared to advantage. You kind of go through all these key points. Um, but that gets to this institutional framework. And what Douglas North does a great job about is looking at it through economic history and different countries, how those countries that have a more top-down approach like a dictatorship, they don't turn out very prosperous. In fact, they turn out very poor. And they mm-hmm. tend to fail over time, whereas those that are built on republics, democracies that also have a form of capitalism um, that allow for civil society to really have a bigger role in the economy, much like the, the West and in America in particular, that's where you have flourishing economies, flourishing people and, and more growth. And so we need to get more back to those things. The other key distinction um, that he has, David, is, is looking at extractive versus in- inclusive institutions. Within each one of those broader economic, political, and social institutions, there's extractive institutions, which are those that take from, from some, like socialism, for example, or dictatorships, um, versus inclusive would be like your capitalism, your republics, your democracies. And, and those inclusive institutions are the ones that bring about even more prosperity whenever you're looking at taking from some and trying to give to others. That redistribution just doesn't work. Because again, going back to Hayek, like you did, the knowledge problem doesn't allow for those inclusive institu- or extractive institutions to reallocate the resources efficiently. There is going to be losses in the process, transaction costs, you, know, you, you name it. There are going to be a massive loss of information and knowledge by redistributing those resources throughout society, and that makes us poorer in the process. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, I, um, I think that one of the things we could do, you know, having set a lot of this shared foundation we have, is maybe look at the state of the economy now and from our respective influences from Smith to Hayek to, to, to Laffer, there's a lot we can learn about what we believe uh, about uh, the economic dimension and the concept of ordered liberty, but there's nothing quite like application. I don't like the idea of people getting heavy into application before they have theory and um, uh, have, before they are operating out of a, a shared set of first principles. But it's quite clear that we share a lot of the same first principles. So what, let's dive into the current state of the economy. Um, I'll put my cards on the table. One of my biggest critiques of the freedom movement uh, as it pertains to economic over the last 50 years, uh, which I'm a diehard member of and am ideologically wed to the notion of uh, uh, belief in economics that is fundamentally rooted to liberty. Um, I think that the freedom movement has often been willing to associate itself with economics of pessimism, that everything is always going wrong. And you talk about the notion of let people prosper. There is a sort of optimism. This is one of the reasons that the economics of Ronald Reagan were so saleable was because he was a very optimistic individual. Now, I'm not really referring just to the polish or the presentation. I think we can all agree that some people are going to be better spokesmen and more attractive, um, you know, uh, salesmen for an idea. But I'm not, I'm more referring to just the idea of economic growth, um, as a net positive period that there is more and more people that seem to be viewing economic growth as overrated, um, economic growth as unobtainable. 
So it's one of the things that was so instrumental in the development of my very close friendship over the years with Larry Kudlow is that he and I share a sort of um, perma-optimism. Um, I have so much faith in the um, way that God made the human spirit and so much confidence in the capability of human ingenuity and innovation that it's very hard for me to stay pessimistic for long. But a lot of people in our movement today don't agree with us. They're, they're, they're quite convinced that the apocalypse is around the corner. Tell me how you net out some of the clear negatives that exist in the economy um, with a generally optimistic disposition that you seem to have. Yeah, no, it's, um, the, yeah, those are those are wise words there, David, and and it is something that I have is an optimistic economist, which those those usually do not go together, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and I I really am. I mean, it really starts with my faith. Um, look, I I believe God created us to flourish. Why would He create us not to flourish? And He gave us these private property rights. He's, he, I mean, look, the economy is really based a lot of what's already in the Bible. This is this is really the the you know, um, uh, be fruitful and multiply, right? Be fruitful and multiply. I think that it goes back to just as simple as that uh, for us to be able to flourish. Um, and the, and of course, Jesus' teachings and everything else. I think it really starts with a lot of that brings in this. This, this new being for us, this, this ability for us to overcome these obstacles. And, and, and that, gave, that gives me uh, that optimism that no matter what's going on around us, that there is more to this than just what's happening on the ground, right? Um, and, and that's one reason why I think that people can overcome a lot of their obstacles as well. You know, I've done it through my own life of, of growing up in a pretty poor area, a single mom, um, a dad who had epilepsy, saw him have a lot of seizures over my life and um, died in, in 2011, too young, um, and, and a number of other things that have happened throughout my life to, to overcome. And I have seen it so many with other people around me to overcome those obstacles. And so if we get too pessimistic, too down, we often turn to things that aren't going to give us optimism, that are not going to solve our problems. And usually it's government, right? To politicians as those individuals, instead of it being, you know, God or family or civil society. And so within this let people prosper movement, I don't, in my mind, anyway, what I'm doing, trying to do with this movement is it's not material prosperity because I've got a lot of pushback. Well, are you just one of those who are speaking the, the prosperity gospel? And it's like, no, I think about it in a broader sense about um, spiritual prosperity, psychological prosperity, sociological pr prosperity. I mean, it goes across the gambit of different areas, civil society prosperity, of us coming together as families and individuals and communities to really bring out the best in us to bring out our, our God-given callings that are going to allow us to overcome the obstacles in our life and ultimately to prosper. And so whenever I start tying that to economics, that's my assumptions. I think you're right earlier where you need those basic economics. Um, one person that I, I did, forgot to mention earlier is Thomas Sowell, right? He's another yeah. um, person that I, that I just love reading his, his writings. And, and you know, basic economics is just so important to thinking about how the, the world works, but breaking it down to just individuals. And when we think about individuals as just wanting to exchange and having that trust, I mean, David, the amount of trust that happens in an economy is, is just huge, Every day when we're driving on the road, we have trust that that person is not just going to come and wreck into us. 
or there's something that goes along with that private property rights and everything else. And of course, there's insurance and other thing that's involved, but there's a cost to these things and nothing is free, right? Like Milton Friedman said, there's no such thing as a free lunch. There's always a cost. And so whatever- Somebody should write a book. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever we're going to give up, that opportunity cost is, is going to be huge. And, and you and I have a huge opportunity cost. We could be doing something else right now, but we know that this is going to be more prosperous for us or we wouldn't do it. That's why we're making these rational decisions that we do. And, and so I don't see the point in being pessimistic about the world that we're in and the things that we can do given our God-given brains <laughs> and abilities to overcome the obstacles. The, the problems that I see really, David, are the things that come with government when they get in the way of shutting us down during uh, a pandemic that puts push to the sidelines entrepreneurs um, that, that take more from people and higher tax rates than is, is necessary to fund limited government spending. And government spending is a big thing that needs to be you know, done or overregulated. These are the things that really keep us from being prosperous. And that's part of my whole, you know, let people prosper uh, mantra. And so the um, optimism comes from your anthropological beliefs about the human person, our shared um, biblical commitment to a growth agenda out of creation, that God created us to grow and steward the earth, and that we have the resources and rational faculties uh, to do so, um, that we're equipped to do so with things like free exchange, mutual cooperation, um, uh, rational self-interest, and um, and yet the, there are different impediments generally that can come from interventions. You mentioned government. Um, would you include monetary policy as a potential impediment to the natural order of economic growth? Because, of course, many would argue that interventionist monetary policy is used to accelerate growth, to smooth growth, to uh, facilitate growth. Um, where, where, where do you think the Fed sits as one of the actors, either protagonist or antagonist in the cause of economic prosperity? I started off, you know, learning about Milton Friedman, um, became more of a monetarist for a long time and really got into the idea that the Federal Reserve can help to smooth out business cycles and even contribute to more growth over time by increasing the money supply, keeping interest rates low and things of that nature. Um, then the Austrian school is basically like, well, look, <laughs> the Federal Reserve is the main villain <laughs> in this economic story. Um, and I think it's probably somewhere in between, but ultimately I do believe that the Federal Reserve is an impediment to more growth, to the... Um, how would I put it? The, the manipulation that happens in the economy with their balance sheet. And, and you know, look, I think interest rates are, they, they have a target federal funds rate that manipulates the orders of production and where the money is going to go. But ultimately, to me, it, it's really about the balance sheet. That's really what they have the most control over. They're, they're targeting the federal funds rate using their balance sheet open market operations, not by directly uh, controlling those that federal funds rate or other interest rates in the economy. And so whenever I'm looking at what the Federal Reserve's doing, I'm looking at the balance sheet, which has went from $4 trillion to $9 trillion during the pandemic. It's down about eight, $8.5 trillion now, about 6.5% reduction there since April of 2022. Uh, but, but I still see that the balance sheet is highly bloated. It, it, there's, there's a lot of money that's going to a lot of different areas like mortgage-backed securities and, and um, long-term 
uh, Treasury Securities, some short term, but but that's changing up some of the dynamics of there as well within the bond market. And those manipulate the economy. And when it when they do that, that leads to the booms and bust cycles that that, that look, I don't think booms and bust cycles are just a natural situation that happens with just man. Um, there are going to be some who are going to make bad decisions throughout the process. Um, but through that market process, others are either going to fill that void or and, and while others fail. Um, it, but there's not a systemic cal- calamity that happens in an economy without the government coming in and manipulating things. Um, you'll, you'll have some now, ups now, and downs. Well, Vince, let, me, let, me, yeah. let me jump in there because... Um, I'm I'm with you 100%, but I I want people to keep listening. So we're going to feign some uh, devil's advocate tension here. Sure. There was no Fed in the 19th century. And we had some serious boom and bust cycles. In the latter, the last 30 years of the 1800s, there were um, severe um, periods of illiquidity and stagnation. And the concept of the Fed was to serve as a lender of last resort to help keep that from having to happen. And so I wonder if your criticism is this brilliant, articulate, and accurate critique of the modern Fed's interventionism and not so much um, the, the purest approach that there ought not be a lender of last resort at all. So it's funny, I said I'm doing this devil's advocate, but that actually is my view. But you had stated earlier that you were willing to get rid of the Fed. It's just that because you know we're not getting rid of the Fed, you want to have a rules-based approach to monetary policy. And you and I are totally aligned on that. And whether it's Taylor rule or nominal GDP targeting or a commodity basket or that there's different competing thoughts as to what a rules-based Fed would look like. But both of us believe there ought to be less discretion, less uh, intervention, and more rules-based monetary policy. But I still am okay with the existence of a central bank as long as their sole and humble role was to be a lender of last resort at high interest rates with good collateral. Um, Does that sound familiar? It does. Um, Where do you stand on that? Yeah, I think those are good points, and it is something that I kind of wrestle with. Um, ultimately, though, I think that you have this mission creep that tends to happen. Yes, the Federal Reserve may have started off after the Aldridge Commission, and they put together the, the central bank, and the Federal Reserve started in 1913 with the Federal Reserve Act, same year that the income taxes were put in place. <laughs> um, a rough year. Um, but there were a lot of things going on. To your, to your point earlier about that late 19th century, those late 1800s, there were a lot of the what, what considered to be booms and bust cycles when you follow things like the gold standard, whenever there was a huge increase in the mining of gold led to the inflationary period, and then there would be kind of a, a bust period, right? It goes up too far and it comes back down. But if you look at this, David, over time, um, inflation would go up, but it would also go down. We, I think we got too, we're too afraid of deflation. And I know in the economic community that there's this downward spiral that's talked about, but deflation also imp- improves 
are real wages, something that has fallen now for 22 straight months on a year-over-year basis on average weekly earnings. Um, we might need a period of deflation for a while to allow for us to catch up, for people to be improved over time. And so when I think about the Federal Reserve, it's, it started off maybe with the lender of last resort being a good thing. But again, this mission creep where um, be, you know public choice economics, Buchanan, um, rent seekers, you have rent seekers who also end up uh, wanting to manipulate what the federal is going to do and where they should act. Um, when the when Congress isn't going to act, who do they want to turn to next within the financial community? It's the Federal Reserve. Uh, we need a bailout. I mean, the bailouts and everything else. And you know, during the 0809 um, Great Recession, that financial crisis, I was in grad school, so I was learning this every day, hearing about it and everything else. I know you were learning at it on the street <laughs> uh, and, and got a bird's eye view of what was happening directly. Um, mine was more from an academic perspective and seeing what was going on. And uh, it, it just seemed like so much manipulation that was happening. Do they, you know, they, they, they bail out one company, they don't bail out this company, um, Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, all those other ones that were in there. And, and I don't think that should be the approach we'd want with the Federal Reserve. But one could argue, David, that that was the lender of last resort. Um, my, my inclination is that if you take bad decisions, which could were influenced by the low interest rates being held for too long over a period of time during the 2000s and the, the housing market situation, um, that, that you have the boom, but you need the bust. We learn a lot from failure. And this socialist mentality of what I think of a central bank often does and Congress tries to do is not allow banks, people to fail. And I I don't know about you, David, but I've, that's what I've learned the most is when I failed. And I think we need that more throughout our economic system as well so that we can be more prosperous um, for the future. Yeah, I mean, of course, the reality is that they did let Lehman fail. Yeah. And, yeah. and the Fed never lent a dollar to Lehman. Mm -hmm. And um, so out of that, I agree with you. There was a sort of schizophrenia, but the reality is it, it was uh, a schizophrenia because of necessity that every day there was a new hole blowing open in a dam and they were trying to, to play whack-a-mole um, and the markets weren't allowing them to. And I think that, um, that the general principle of mission creep is a wonderful argument against most governmental bodies that um, there is nothing so permanent as a temporary government program as the aforementioned Milton Friedman famously said, I think is a very good critique against the idea of a central bank. But I also believe that many of our founding fathers were concerned about the same thing with Hamilton's idea of a national bank until they weren't. Madison and Jefferson came on board. And I think that with the renewal of the second national bank, that we did kind of learn that Hamilton was right and, and Jefferson and Madison were wrong. And that there was room for a national bank that stayed humbled and stayed chartered. And to me, it's what the point of a constitutional republic is supposed to be. Let's pass laws, but then let's operate within those laws as a means of limiting, um, of having a limiting principle uh, to, to address the concern you and I both have about mission creep. And, and so I don't think there's anything intellectually inconsistent about saying, I believe that there can be a lender of last resort role but that we have to just fight vigilantly against mission creep. What we did is not just allow mission creep to happen with our Fed, we codified it with Humphrey Hawkins. And this dual mandate, um, which is now 
really not anywhere close to limited to two mandates. Um, but even then, this notion of price stability and full employment went far beyond the idea. It doesn't contain an embedded limited principle. The Fed is right to say that they should be doing more and more and more all the time if full employment and price stability are their objectives because there's always more that can be done to get people working jobs. So why not open up a swap line with Ecuador uh, using funny money and say you're doing it for full employment, right? There's no limiting principle out of the Humphrey Hawkins Act. But I still think that when we talk about booms and busts, and and I'm, I'm historically averse to acting as if we could have just let people experience the pain of a bank bust. I would like all bad banks to go under. But at that point of systemic failure uh, post-GFC, I think we have to do honor to the reality that the mistakes that were made were made in the decades leading up to the crisis and, and more so than the moments directly thereafter where the, the bust was not going to be the shareholders of Lehman. They were already wiped out. They got $0, and most of the creditors got pretty close to $0 too. Some senior secured ended up getting about $0.13, cents and most everyone below that on the capital structure got 0 But if we had literally said we were going to let Citi and JP and all the rest, at that point, I think the Fed being there as a lender of last resort taking collateral at the discount window and allowing some of those things to happen. Um, it was a mess. It was done so poorly. Congress screwed everything up with the way that they allowed TARP to kind of have two different options as opposed to just saying the way they were going to do it with equity capital. But I still, I still think at the end of the day, the lender of last resort, um, no one has ever really been able to codify how we would handle that illiquidity problem without a central bank. Um, and I think the idea of lending against good collateral at high interest rates is not very interventionist and it doesn't have to have missional creep. Hmm. No, it's, it's a good point. Um, you know, I think whenever I'm looking at my ideal scenario, David would be uh, a free banking system. Um, I don't know if Larry White, had some some yeah. good write, writings on this, um, where you allow for there could still be a central bank, but there you allow for banks to issue kind of their own currency and allow yeah. them to compete in the marketplace, which we had for a period of time during the eighteen hundreds, um, and it allows for those banks that aren't doing very well to to falter and, and and go under at the end of the day, and it also incentivizes. Would you people. favor then amending the constitution to allow for that? Yes, since the constitution gives the exclusive power over minting a money to the Congress? I would. I think it would be important. Now, that's a whole other hurdle you have to go over. <laughs> but, but academically, but, but that's I was, where I'm at. I, see, I'm with you. I, just, I, I always think it's interesting because you and I are constitutional purists. Yes. And yet free banking is sort of going against the Constitution, right? Yeah. That, no, that's true. Yeah. It's true. Well, it's, it's kind of like right now. I'm, I'm, I'm against an income tax. You know, I, I know there was some talk about the fair tax with a national consumption type tax, but if you do that, I think you need to you need to get rid of the Sixteenth Amendment because we don't want the opportunity to have a sales tax and an income tax at the same time. Well, let me tell you something. That's what they will do. Yep. If the fair tax ever sees passage, 
it'll be three years till we have a fair tax and an income tax. Yep. That, that's, that's my prediction. And yeah, and um, that's, a, that's a grave concern. We definitely, we definitely don't want that. And you know, the other thing, David is a lot of my research on a value added tax, man. I, I don't like a value added tax. I don't, I don't think we want a European style tax. Um, I think it distorts each layer of production, kind of like interest rates do. Now I know that you can, at the end of the day, they can come and bring that money back. But, you know, there's these different ways that with a VAT to try to keep those costs from adding up to the final price at the end of the day and having those costs for each business that orders of production um, to be passed along. But initially, there's always going to be that distortion, those transaction costs that take place. And so I really, I think it acts much like higher um, artificial interest rates do in an economy by changing the orders of production, which can lead to worse economic outcomes and lower productivity at the end of the day, which is one reason why I think the, the, that European countries um, do more poorly economically than the United States. How do we pay off $31 trillion of debt? Oh, man. The first place we need to start is reining in government spending. You know, if we... So I'm a big fan of spending limits. Barry Polson, you know, there's a lot of good good folks who've been writing about spending limits for a long time. I know you had um, Alex Salter on recently, who's a good friend. And um, we, we, wrote, we wrote a piece of Fox News talking about we need a monetary rule and a fiscal rule. If, if you only have one or not the other then it leaves to too much discretion because the, the Federal Reserve also plays a role with what Congress is doing. I know they should be independent, and we probably have one of the most independent central banks in the world. But there is a connection between the two of when you have massive amount of deficits, they don't want their interest rate to go up too high, their target interest rate. So they've got to put more money into the economy to be able to keep interest rates lower than otherwise. And that creates this artificial lowering of interest rates. Um, and, and so whenever I'm thinking about fiscal policy, and, and this is where a lot of my research is at, not only at, in, at the federal level, when I was the um, Associate Director for Economic Policy at the Office of Management and Budget, which Larry Kudlow had back in the early 1980s in the Reagan administration and Art Laffer had in the early 70s during the Nixon administration, um, you know, I, th I think we need a strong spending limit. Uh, my preference, and, 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 and again, kind of to your point about the, the monetary rule, there are different, there are good ones that are out there. Fiscal rule, I just want to see some restraint, but I think the, the, the best one is based on population growth and inflation. And if you looked at the last 20 years, I just did these data, um, this analysis here recently and put it on my um, a blog post at advancedgen.com, was looking at the last 20 years from 2003 to 2022, even including you know, the pandemic and all of the $7 trillion in national debt that's been increased in the last three years. If we had matched population growth and inflation over that period, instead of adding $19 trillion to the, nation, the national debt, that it would have only added $500 billion. That's an $8.5 trillion swing in a better direction for taxpayers over time. Now, one could argue we had the Great Recession, we had the pandemic and all of that, and I get that. So maybe you would exceed the limit during those periods because those are extraneous circumstances, but otherwise we've got to slow the growth rate over time. And this is what states do. 49 out of the 50 states have a balanced budget amendment. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the balanced budget amendment. I like that revenue needs equal spending, but I think it can lead to higher taxes. <laughs> and where the, the ultimate burden, again, going back to Friedman, we mentioned him a lot, the ultimate burden of government is how much, how much the government spends, not by how much it taxes. Taxes are a yeah. symptom of the spending. But here's why I'm comfortable with the balanced budget amendment, even okay. though I don't want higher taxes. It, and you're exactly right. It can be. But it can only a balanced budget amendment can only lead to higher taxes if the people's elected representatives 
do not get the size of government and spending in line, which in other words, a balanced budget amendment forces the people to um, be accountable. That if the people want higher spending, then they're going to end up with a depletion of economic growth that comes from higher and punitive marginal tax rates. And I don't want higher and punitive marginal tax rates because I think they're a disincentive to economic growth and productivity and eventually prosperity, as you and I and Laffer and, and so forth believe. But, the, but I think that there has to be some acknowledgement here that we don't just have bad politicians, that we have people that love the idea of government spending things as long as they don't have to pay for them. And that what a balanced budget amendment does is not just put some accountability on the elected representatives, but on the people who vote for them. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I guess my only retort would be, you know, that that those politicians have a lot of interest groups who are coming at them in order to spend. <laughs> it's not just the taxpayer, but businesses, associations, and others. Well, those are all taxpayers. They are, but they're coordinated efforts in order to grow government, whereas may not be in the best interest of the people, the taxpayers themselves. It's kind of like why forced labor unions don't work. Because the leaders of the force la of the, the labor unions that you're paying dues to may not actually represent the people that are paying the dues. Yeah, well, that I think that's the point um, th that in a constitutional republic, yeah, um, there is always going to be someone who could be unhappy, and and yet there has to be a versus a top-down status determination of how to allocate public resources that the people have to have skin in that game and then be accountable to what they choose to spend and not spend. And that includes sometimes fighting against special interest groups. I, I don't disagree with you at all. And sure. I think the labor union example is a great one, but I am always a little bit curious where the line ends of a special interest group and it begins for just the people. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, well, it, it, and I, and I should just clarify, like I, I'll be in favor of a balanced budget amendment. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> um, I, I just think that we want to make sure that we're setting our eyes on the prize, and and ultimately that should be about limiting spending. And yeah. it, just like right now, this debt ceiling fight, I, I think if Republicans don't find a way to rein in spending, maybe even like the Budget Control Act of 2011, something that's going to either slow the growth or cut spending, that'll be a big loss. Um, I'm not one of those who says we need to get rid of the debt ceiling. I do think that there, it pre presses the brakes a little bit um, to have these discussions that are going on. Unfortunately, it's been Democrats and Republicans that, all, that always want to just raise it above <laughs> the debt limit, even during the Trump administration, right? Is that we ra raise the debt ceiling as well. So it's, and, and it's been both Republicans and Democrats in the House and in the Senate, depending on who's leading. Um, uh, there's, there's been some good uh, um, figures out recently, a good you know charts that show David Bowes at Cato has a nice chart that shows, hey, here's what spending was, or, or sorry, the debt, deficit increases under each president, and then underneath it has House and Senate in red and blue, right? And it's under Republicans and Democrats. It doesn't really matter. There's always this excessive spending that's going on. And so we've really got to rein in that government spending. And I think what that will do will also ultimately um, rein in the Federal Reserve. Uh, I, I think that during this last period, this increase in the balance sheet of the Fed from $4 trillion to $9 trillion, a lot of that was because we had massive deficits that 
We didn't want interest rates to soar during a period when people were losing their jobs and, and not having jobs over that period. And so the Federal Reserve went and bought a lot of that debt that was out there. And then that created this inflationary picture. I recently talked to him on my Let Prosper show, um, John Cochran, who has a lot of good thoughts on the fiscal theory of the price level. Um, the only thing that I would kind of disagree a little bit, because I do think the fiscal policy contributes, of course, to what's going on to monetary policy when they monetize that debt. Um, I just put a little bit more on the inflationary pressures on the Fed and not on Congress. To me, Congress's spending is not, um, it doesn't stimulate demand, right? It, it's, not, it's not pushing the aggregate demand curve to the right because you're just redistributing dollars around in the economy. What's really pushing that demand curve to the right is when the Fed prints more money. Now you have too much money. And then if the supply side doesn't catch up along the way, then you have too much money tasting too few goods, you're going to have massive inflation. This is one reason why I was saying from the beginning that this was going to be persistent inflation, just given the dynamics of the economy that were going on. And I don't see that changing anytime soon, David, because the, Biden's not going to uh, sign a tax, cu tax cut bill. You know, I think that it's pro-growth also have cutting in spending. Looks like spending is probably going to continue. Uh, regulations of the energy sector and everything else, I think they're going to double down on those. They're not going to come back. Uh, they're not going to cut those back. And so where does the supply side growth really come from? Because growth is really what we need here. So where, why do you think there wasn't inflation after the financial crisis when all of those conditions existed? Fed um, via quantitative easing, uh, bloating its balance sheet, massive deficits, uh, both in the uh, tail end of the Bush administration and then supersized into the stimulus and Keynesian efforts of the Obama administration and holding them there, not for a year, but for seven years, but, and then uh, really in effect for 10 years. Um, they got one quarter point rate hike before they got serious about it a year later. So I'm just wondering what, in your mind, I've talked to a lot of people. You mentioned Alex Salter. Um, I've had, I think, half a dozen real prominent um, Fed-oriented guests on this show about this very subject. I have my own opinions about it, but I wonder what yours is, Vance. I, I hold you in high regard. Why do you think those conditions um, were not inflationary post-2008? And I've listened to a lot of those episodes you had, and I, 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 those are great discussions. And I hope the audience will go back and listen to those. I think from my perspective, I, again, I go to the balance sheet of the Fed. And the balance sheet of the Fed was very diversified. They were buying mortgage-backed securities. They were buying commercial paper. Um, there was a, you know, it wasn't just buying treasury debt that ends up being uh, more broad-based uh, funding that's going out to the economy. It was very directed on the assets that they were purchasing and, purchasing and adding to the debt. And they went from about $800 billion to $4 trillion. So it was a massive increase. But if you separated that out, I believe it was only uh, maybe half. It was a higher percentage yeah. of mortgage-backed debt in the COVID QE than it was in the GFC. That's correct. Yeah. And so, and so I think that would work against what you're saying, wouldn't it? Well, but the, the other thing was is that on the flip side of this, they were also paying interest on excess reserves, which I know some of the guests and you've talked to some of them about that. But that kept that spigot from growing as fast and putting money into the economy as it otherwise would. We didn't right. have that in place this time around. The, that, that money was a direct spigot to the people of getting those funds and, and then them purchasing more goods and services across the economy, which would have been more inflationary than what we would have had back after the Great Recession. And so you think that the policy tool of paying interest on excess reserves 
is the key to keeping it in the excess reserves as opposed to lingering into money supply. I think that was a big factor. I think that was the, the biggest factor. Along with that, they were purchasing more things and putting them on their balance sheet compared to the, what they did during the, the financial crisis or the, during the pandemic here most recently. Because it was mostly just the mortgage-backed securities and treasury securities. It wasn't all the other assets that they were, you know, different rounds of quantitative easing that they did back, um, back then. Yeah, I think that um, that there's a real need for a certain humility for for economists around a lot of this because yeah. I don't know that we're going to know the full story for a, quite some time. History's sort of unfolding, and it's one of the dangers of interventionist and creative monetary policy is sometimes new developments come quicker than one can uh, develop theories around them. Um, but I think that the interest on on excess reserves has been paid, has still been being paid, and was paid throughout. And I think it was a, a factor. I think a lot of it also, post Dodd Frank, was just the uh, balance sheet requirements of banks in a new highly regulated environment that um, they were holding on to more capital. But I think that at the end of the day, there's just a real denial as to how much erosion of loan demand there's been. And that that downward pressure on velocity um, that is really highly correlated to deteriorated loan demand. And I think a lot of that deteriorated loan demand is another way of saying that there aren't good borrowers because they've over levered the corporate sector and the governmental sector of the economy so much. It's hard to get that money out there into the real economy. You look at right now, M2 is negative. Um, the money supply flew higher during COVID, but just almost as rapidly has come all the way right back down. It hasn't stayed in circulation. And so there, I, I, I am a big student of Japan and, and believe that more or less what happened post-GFC for our country was very Japan-like with certain conditions that were a little different, thank God. But I think you're right about um, the highly regulatory nature of the Biden administration, particularly around energy. I think the um, supply side movement has not got enough credit for what took the 80s have not been um, documented enough for what Reagan did with energy. Um, we, as we talk so much about Volcker's tightening and the marginal tax rate cuts, I think there's a lot to be said about energy independence, too. But fundamentally, um, the question as to the Fed's interventions and their role in extending um, money circulation, uh, I, I, I still think there's some counterfactuals that are really difficult to deal with. But what I like about what you're saying is that regardless of, how, of what we think the outcome will be, because I think that when one is predicting the Fed's interventionist role, as I am, being in, um, distortive and, and deflationary over time, um, I think I'm predicting uh, and calling the, the, what the Fed's doing as being a bad thing. And I think you're doing the exact same thing, even if you're concerned about a different bad thing, right? Yeah. And, and so it, it makes for really important discussion. And obviously, we've had some of those on, with other guests at Capital Record. Let's go back. Let's close with some talk on the fiscal side where we obviously certainly agree. 31 trillion of debt. The first thing we have to do is have spending limits, spending cuts, 
some form of, um, you know, right-sizing government. You know, that stuff's all, all pretty obvious. I don't think we're going to do it. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be easy to do it. And I think that we have a people who have fallen in love with a king who unfortunately want bigger government than they're willing to pay for. But let's say we got that. Let's say you and I got our wish list that we will not have a budget deficit. And that the 31 trillion of debt will not become 33 trillion of debt and 34 trillion and 36 trillion. Still, then we have a 31 trillion debt balance sheet on the liability side of the national balance sheet, not counting um, unfunded liabilities with Medicare and Social Security. Would you support something like a VAT tax temporarily to reduce principal on the debt? Or do you think that that would be um, a dangerous step as well? I, I think it would be a dangerous step. Um, I would rather there not be a new tax because that would be a brand new tax. And if you put in a brand new tax zone without taking some of the other taxes, we run into the situation that we talked about earlier with the, the fair tax, national consumption tax versus an income tax. Um, I, I'm, I'm in favor of a final sales and use tax. I live in Texas. Right, the nine states with a final sales and use tax um, perform much better than those states with a high income tax. Even compared with flat income tax states, they perform better in terms of population growth, migration flows, um, GDP growth, jobs, you know, all that stuff. They they perform better, and so I, I would not want to put in place a VAT um, for the federal government because I'm worried that it would have again this mission creep <laughs> of doing other yeah. things. But I but I do think it. You know, I think we agree that it's it's spending. Has got to be what they rein it in, and you know maybe we're not paying down the thirty-one trillion dollars. Some of those are just going to fall off over time, but they'll just reissue new debt, and that's another big thing right now. You know, David, is that the um, interest rate on the debt continues to go to go up as well as our other interest rates are going up. I think they're about double what they were just a year and a half ago, which is going to put additional pressure on the net interest on the debt that we're going to have to pay, which is probably going to be over a trillion dollars either this year or next year, which is going to exceed national defense. It's going to ex exceed most of the social programs that are out there. It's going to crowd out the budget. And when it crowds out the budget, do they just need to increase spending on everywhere else? And it's going to ramp up the debt, which the CBO, which I don't always consider them the gold standard for forecasting, okay? But even they're showing that under the current trends, we're going to start having $2 trillion a year. Even without additional spending or anything else that happens or recession, $2 trillion is, the, is going to be the new norm for the deficit each year. Um, that's, that, that's, that's unsustainable. That so we were, spending a we were spending a billion dollars a day in interest service on the debt before COVID, yep. and we're now spending $2 billion a day. And, and so you're, you're right. We're not up to a trillion a year yet, but we're getting close. But the only thing I would say is your conclusion was it's going to start crowding out other parts of the budget, where my conclusion is it won't yeah. because it won't happen Yeah, be because the Fed will – have to push interest rates lower, a la Japan, um, as a means of, of affording the national debt. So in other words, we're both worried about a certain problem, but I think they solve one problem by creating the other one, which is their default problem they love, which is, back to our original conversation, boom-bust cycle, intervention, um, artificial distortions in the marketplace, a wrongful allocation of capital resources, et cetera. Um, yes. 
Behind door number one is unaffordability of interest. Behind door number two is a bad policy tool to deal with it. I don't like either door. No, I don't either. And I think I think you're right. I mean, I would that was my that'd be the next step is that the Fed is going to have to monetize it, which leads to more inflationary pressures. I think that'll be throughout the economy, um, and 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 then. They'll have to raise interest rates more, uh, cut the balance sheet, hopefully more. They probably won't because of this new debt that's going to be added up over time. So we're in a bad situation, which is, again, why I think the spending limit, these rules, right, the constitutional rules that are in place, um, putting, getting rid of a lot of the discretionary from the fiscal and monetary side are going to be so important for people to flourish throughout the economy with a spending limit and a monetary rule that are both restrictive as much as possible because of that, I think, will help with the booms and bust cycles that we're otherwise going to see. And, and, and yeah. I would add, David, is that I do a lot of work with states. And my optimism is also that I think states are doing a lot of good things. There's a, lot of, there's a, there's a school choice revolution that's going on, which I'm a huge school choice fan. Um, there's the flat tax revolution that's going on, which I think is important. I know other states like Iowa, Louisiana, and some others are also working on trying to eliminate income taxes. Um, and then I think we're going to have, we're still seeing responsible budget revolution, which is something else that I've been working on a lot. So we need to learn from these mistakes of the past. I have a piece out today um, with, with Dr. Art Laffer to, uh, in The Federalist talking about that we need to learn from these mistakes in the past. And by learning some of the failures that happened at the federal level, we can get a lot more right at the state level. The system of federalism where we have laboratories of competition that allow for us to see what works best. And we've seen this pretty clearly over time that those states that spend less, tax less, and regulate less, uh, they do a lot better. Places like Texas where I'm at or Tennessee or Florida, those are the types of places that you want to be in, which is why so many people are moving to those states. And so if we can have some of this start to seep into what's happening in D.C., which they may have to be forced to with crises that are going to come out with Social Security, Medicare, the debt, insolvency, all these other things, um, they can learn some big lessons from the states. And I, and I hope they will, but also learn from the mistakes that have happened in the past at the federal level, because that's how we're ultimately going to let people prosper. Well, I agree entirely. Vance, we could go on all day. There's so many wonderful things to talk about. I've kept you longer than I intended to, but I just thank you so much for joining us for your wonderful perspective. We covered a lot of economic history, first principles, um, current policy discussion, and I just hope you'll keep doing the good work you're doing and you'll come back and join us again on Capital Record. Be glad to, David. It's a pleasure with you today. Um, God bless you and, and your family. Thanks so much, Vance. Well, once again, we went all over the place, covered so many different topics. You know, he started off, we talk about the subject of mainline economics and, and obviously someone who gets their first kind of introduction to economics from Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman. Um, they're, they're starting off in a pretty good place. And uh, his, his, Vance's command of, of economic history is wonderful. Uh, we have a lot of the same influences. There's uh, certain aspects in application of Austrian monetary policy that I don't think we totally see eye to eye on, but you notice the kind of intellectual hospitality there and willingness to kind of sort through some of those issues and think about the different scenarios that could play out with things that we're concerned about. Um, at the end of the day, uh, let people prosper. This concept of an optimistic view of the human spirit, of what can be done when humans are left alone to flourish. We're coming from the same place and we want to get there the same way. And I hope you got a lot out of that conversation. I thank you for listening to Capital Record. 
I hope you'll support us by reviewing it, uh, giving us a star rating and subscribing in your player of choice, forwarding this to people you think would be interested. And I hope you'll join us next week for what will be a, another vibrant, robust discussion here on Capitol Record. Thank <laughs> you.